for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In Philip Ryken's book on the Gospel of Luke, he begins his chapter on this particular section of Luke by writing a story about a young girl named Elizabeth who was raised in a small village in Southeast Asia by parents who taught her to trust God and live for Him and trust Him. When Elizabeth was 16 years old, a relative offered to get her a job in another country to help her to supply her family with much-needed funds as well as her to, herself to earn some money to go to college. She was thrilled about this. However, the relative had betrayed her, and when they got to the border of their country, she was sold into sexual slavery. And for seven months, she was violated over and over again at a home where immoral, quote, customers came to have their way with her. Seven months later, as I said, she was rescued, and those who discovered the room where she had been trapped had found these words written on her wall. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? How does a person summon that type of courage in a situation like that? How can a person live in confident hope in the face of that type of evil? And more personally to us, how can we, who are often intimidated by the shrug of a shoulder or the of a friend, live in a way that is bold and that is a life of integrity without backing down due to fear? Hostility often breeds fear, which may lead to a double life, which may lead even to the abandoning of our faith. And in these moments, we need courage and strength. Luke 11 was all about hostility and hypocrisy. Remember, Luke 11 was these different responses to our Lord's teaching, uh, and it was all uh, hostility towards the end. Luke 12, then, describes potential pitfalls for those who really want to follow after Christ. Just kind of glance through Luke chapter 12. We'll be here for a couple of weeks, but you have things like hypocrisy, possessions, fear, anxiety, a lack of preparedness for Christ, even family. All of these things can serve as hurdles or barriers or pitfalls to those who really want to follow Christ. Someone who becomes so enamored with possessions and finances may find that they are more glorious than pursuing Jesus, or anxieties, or fears, or troubles, or persecutions, or a lack of preparedness, and as we'll study this morning, hypocrisy. Week by week, we're going to see these potential dangers and how Christ instructs us to live in spite of those or in light of those. And something that's very important is to see these dangers as dangers for you. And I need to see them as dangers for me. We often listen to messages with other people in mind. We often often think of, a, I'm going to suggest this message to this person, or I wish this person was here to hear this. We all need to hear this lesson. In the context, the hostilities against Christ have risen to a great level. If you look back at the last two verses of chapter 11, you see that the Pharisees now are beginning to look to trap him and provoke him and to catch him in his talk. There are actually thousands, chapter 12, verse 1, of people crowding Jesus. They are thronging him. In fact, some commentators think this means that there are really tens of thousands of people now attracted to the ministry that Christ is doing. 
And Jesus begins speaking to his disciples in the context of these thousands. You see it at the end of the verse 1? He starts talking to his disciples first. So these crowds are most likely listening in or surrounding him. It actually says they're trampling each other to get close. Maybe some are curious, some are amazed. Remember, some are marveling at the works he's doing. And some really want to just get him trapped and hear something that they can then accuse him of something. Maybe some are truly interested, but he's focusing on followers of Christ. And so understand this, that chapter 12 is spoken to followers of Christ. Don't raise your hand, but are you a follower of Christ today? If you are, then Christ is speaking to us. Christ is speaking to you. And, and I would like to gather today's lesson into three sections. And it's not the greatest heading, but at least we'll be able to track through it. Verses 1 to 3, Jesus talks about fake. He talks about being fake. In verse 4, 7, he talks about fear. And in verse 8 to 12, he talks about forgiveness. Okay, so that's just where we're kind of tracking. He's talking to us about fake, fear, forgiveness. And so that's how I want to kind of track this morning. First of all, verse 1 to 3, he talks about being fake. First of all, he gives a very stern warning. You see it there at the end of verse number 1. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we don't need to wonder what that is because he goes on to say it is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, again, Riken says, is the gap between the outward appearance of our godly lives and the reality of who we are on the inside. Isn't that good? That's a really helpful definition. The gap that exists between who we pretend to be on the outside and who we really are on the inside. How wide should that gap be? Nothing. There should be no gap. The wider the gap, the greater the hypocrisy. So hypocrisy is defined as that gap. Hypocrisy, of course, is a, or hypocrite, hypocrites, is a theatrical term that actors wore this thing, mask, to hide who they really were while they're impersonating another character. Right? So they, you've seen these theater things, you've got the smiley face, you've got the sad face, and they put them in front, or whoever they'd be, I'm the, I'm the jester, I'm the king, I'm the, I'm the robber, whatever. And, but that's not who we really am on the inside. This mask is hiding who I really am. And Jesus says, you've got to beware of that. Beware of that gap. Beware of that false pretense. Last week we said these couple of things about hypocrites. And again, it's for me. It's for, it's for me. I need to be convicted of this. You as a follower of Christ need to be convicted of this. Apply it to yourself. Hypocrites are overly concerned about other people's sins and not concerned enough about their own. Hypocrites look at the speck in their brother's eye and ignoring the, I mean, Jesus is funny here. Jesus is funny because you can almost imagine him picking up a stick when he's telling this story. The Bible doesn't say he did, but you can almost, I mean, he's, it's, just, it's just kind of funny. Can you imagine a person, you know, it, it, in, in our day we might say, oh, you got a splinter in your hand. Yeah, you got a cannonball wound through your gut, right? It's like, what, why are you pointing something so minor out to me when your problem is major? Remember we said that hypocrites are very concerned about the sin that's out there and not concerned about the sin that's in here. I need to be better at that. You need to be better at that. Hypocrites check boxes. They worry about minutia while they ignore people's needs. Remember the Good Samaritan as an example. Hypocrites are incapable of discerning the real meaning of the Scripture and therefore can only pretend to have piety. They only have the appearance of it. Inside, it's all fake. What does Jesus say about this? You might underline it in your Bible. I always encourage you to write in your Bible. Underline, highlight, whatever. Be where, when you see the word beware, 
It is identifying a danger. Right? You see, and, and usually we would see beware of beware of dog. Beware of dog. We should have one of those signs on a tree out by our house. I mean, Maisie sees a, a car with its hazard lights on. It's got a flat tire out in the road. Don't you dare come any closer, right? Beware of dog. There is a danger that is present. And so Jesus is saying there is a danger. But this word beware has an interesting um, twist. It's a nautical word. It's a word used by sailors. And it meant to keep the ship headed in the right direction, to hold the ship's course. And so figuratively then, it, it meant apply your mind to this teaching. Don't be distracted. This is the danger. Pay very close attention. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, right? He says to his followers, his learners first, Apply your mind to this. Take heed. And it's also used in a tense that means it's got to be constant. It should be constantly happening. It's not like, hey, beware of hypocrisy, and now let's move on to something else. No, constantly beware of this. And he compares it to leaven, which is what? Ye yeast. It's yeast. Okay, beware of the leaven, which is yeast. Why does he do this? Yeast has a penetrating, pervasive and imperceptible influence, right? When we have pizza on Saturday night and I'm maybe preparing last minute some things here or doing something around the house and I, I walk through one moment and the bowl of dough is just kind of sunken down in that plastic, ladies, you know what I'm saying, and then I'll walk away for a while and 30, 40 minutes later, all of a sudden that thing is like over, overflowing over the bowl. What, what happened? I, I didn't stand and watch it. I was, but this small, tiny little bit of yeast comes in a little pack. I can never find it at the grocery store. You, you tear it off and you dump it in the dough and, and then it pervades and influences whatever it touches. And in the Bible, it's always seen as a corruptive force, leaven is. I like this pervasive, powerful, imperceptive, Listen to this, hypocrisy begins to take root in your life without you even knowing it. That's why he says beware, you have to constantly be self-examining. If we are not careful as followers of Christ, hypocrisy can begin to sink in and we get, can begin to perform outward religious activity without really loving God from our hearts. I read my Bible every day so I can check off the box on my sheet. I share the gospel with other people so people will pat me on the back and say that I'm doing well evangelizing. This is something that we need to recognize in ourselves. Sometimes this hypocrisy is brought on by outward hostility. In other words, we start to back down and hide out. Sometimes it's brought on by a desire to impress, and so we act up and show off. I want to say that again because I think it's helpful. Sometimes hypocrisy is brought on by hostility. There's... there's there's opposition in our lives. And so what we do is we pretend we're not that committed to Christ. We, we back down. We hide out. We don't want our commitment to be so open, so noticeable. And then other times it's brought on by a desire to impress. This is when we want kind of a falseness to be, motivated, to be seen. And so we act up and show off and it's not real. We have to constantly be vigilant against this hypocrisy, which is what the Lord is instructing his disciples to do, and in turn, us who are followers of Christ. Well, why? Jesus gives two reasons why hypocrisy must be guarded against. And the first reason is this, verses 2 and 3. Hypocrisy will be exposed. Hypocrisy will be exposed. Here's a great statement I read this week. 
Hypocrisy is only successful when perception is understood as reality. You get that? Your hypocrisy and my hypocrisy only works as long as the perception is thought of as real. But hypocrisy cannot be perpetuated forever. Maybe in this life, you can pretend. I can pretend. But God knows and sees. Look at the passage. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Then he says, verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden. That, in other words, that mask will be torn away at some point. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you whisper in your private rooms will be shouted on the housetops. Look at the back and forth of those two verses. You have something covered. Let's say it out loud so you can track with me. You have something that was covered and it will be what? Yeah, yeah revealed. You have something hidden and it will be known. You do something in the dark, it will be revealed light. You say something in an inner room, it will be on the roof. See what Jesus is doing? God's omniscience and omnipotence are all over this passage. Secrets will be revealed. Now let's debate this for a minute, at least in our minds. We can't talk back and forth too much, but there's a debate as to whether or not this is something that is positive or negative. Right? Is this something that we should be encouraged by or something we should be scared by? But that debate doesn't really matter. The, the point is, is that everything that is secret will eventually be exposed. Okay? The point of the passage is that all will be known. Why? It's our theme today. Because God is all-knowing. Nothing can be hidden from Him. In fact, all those words we just said, uh, the, the, the opposite words, right? We had, we had something that was covered and revealed. So, we have on the, on, the, on the right side of that, I guess that's on my paper, we have the revealing, the knowing, the hearing, and the proclaiming. Let me back up so you make sure you're with me, right? Nothing is covered. We're trying to cover. It will be revealed. We're trying to hide. It will be made known. We're in the dark. It will be in the light. It will be heard. That's the verb. We will whisper. It will be proclaimed. Well, who is the action person of those other verbs, right? We're doing the covering. We're doing the hiding. We're, we're doing the whispering, Right? Who is doing the revealing? Who is doing the knowing? Who is doing the hearing? And who is doing the proclaiming? Who is doing that? God is doing that. Right? All of the verbs relate to God. God perceives and will reveal all. So is this positive or negative? The debate doesn't matter. The only point is that everything will come out. So, if you are hiding something, you should be what? Well, you will be revealed, but, but if you are hiding something, Jesus' words serve as a warning, right? Jesus' words serve as a warning. But if you are acting with integrity, then Jesus' words serve as a what? Encouragement. You know, encouragement. No one knows that I've memorized Leviticus. <laughs> no one knows that I cut the grass every week. No one knows that I've loved my neighbor and taken them soup when they've been sick. No one's seen that. Pastors never announced that. That all will come out. It will all be exposed. No one knows what I'm surfing on the internet. No one knows my heart of anger towards that fellow Christian. No one knows when I get online and start texting my family members about how stupid my pastor is or how stupid that other Christian person is. No one knows that. 
it'll all be exposed. I mean, if you're on the wrong side, you ought to be freaked out. Right? Nothing you're hiding is truly hidden. Listen to these scriptures. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. That's why I don't think the debate matters. If it's good, it's going to be known. If it's evil, it's going to be known. Romans 2.16, on that day, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. There are no secrets with God. You have no secrets. You may think you have a secret. Your husband doesn't know, your wife doesn't know, your pastor doesn't know, your kids don't know, your neighbor doesn't know. Nobody knows but you. You have this little secret. It's a sin you only commit in your mind. God knows. It's, it's, it's a warning against being hypocritical. This is why it's a beware. Beware of that because you will be exposed. Whether you are a petty thief, you said an angry word, you have a lustful desire, or you spin the truth. Whether you commit acts of kindness, labors of love, you share the gospel. And even Matthew 10, 42 says, every cup of cold water given in my name will not be forgotten. Isn't that great? So be encouraged if you're doing things, that integrity will eventually be exposed, but so will hypocrisy. So let me ask you this. What is your secret and when will it be exposed? If you are carrying a secret, confess it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's not, a, not a, it's not a coincidence we're singing songs that we sing. His mercy is more. Hypo hypocrisy will be exposed. That's not the only reason. Hypocrites, number two, will be expelled. And this kind of goes into our next section and we'll kind of transition. It's verse four. The fear of man often causes us to back down from our commitment to Christ, just like verse nine says, and we'll get to that, to even deny Christ before men. Hypocrites will be exposed. Hypocrites will be expelled. Let's move to the second section as we continue talking about that, verse 4 to 7, fear. I tell you, friends, again, he's talking to his disciples, this is verse 4, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can't do anything else. Verse 5, I warn you to fear, I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. We can be free from the leaven, the yeast of hypocrisy, when we fear God more than we fear other people. The title of the lesson today is When People Are Big and God is Small. It's based on a book I read years and years ago. A lot of times people act in a way where people become big. They fear the face of men more than they fear the face of God. And so that impacts all of their decisions. There is a fear that comes when our life is in danger. In fact, look back a little bit, two chapters to Luke 9. Let me point something out that that the disciples would, would, this would be in their mind as Jesus is saying these things. Luke 9, verse 9. In fact, let, let, let's verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening and was perplexed. And some had said John had been raised from the dead. Some Elijah had appeared. Others, a prophet had risen. Verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded. <laughs> John's dead. A connection with Christ, an identity with, an identity with Jesus got John killed. Look at the same chapter down to verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it talks about losing your life if you decide to follow Christ. 
There is peril for those who will be followers of Jesus, even looking ahead to Luke 11 as we make our way back to Luke 12. We just went over this last week. Luke 11 verse 49 says, the wisdom of God, and we said that means the sovereign plan of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they're going to kill, and some of them they're going to persecute. And one of those sent ones was killed this week in Cameroon. Followers of Christ. The wisdom of God has deigned that people were persecuted. And this fear is a danger for disciples. But what we must do when we become fearful about what people are saying, what people are doing is, and this will keep us from being hypocritical, and here's, I'm, tr- I'm trying to tie it all together. We become hypocrites when we become afraid, right? We become afraid. We're talking to our neighbor, and I don't want them to know I'm a Christian, so I become hypocritical. I'm, a, I'm just afraid they might treat me differently or think differently about me or not be my friend anymore. I mean, we don't have anybody threatening us as far as life and limb, but this fear must be substituted for another. We must stop fearing the one who can simply kill our body and fear the one, as Matthew 10 says, the one who can put soul and body in hell. Compare those fears. Let's compare those fears for a minute. If you're writing anything down, I just like to put a, you know, a, a columns, a left hand and a, and a right hand column. Think about the fear of man. What we fear in this life is temporal, where the fear of God is what? Eternal. There's eternal consequences. What is the worst thing that can happen to us in this life? The worst thing physically that can happen to us? Death. Whether it's ongoing suffering, Christians in the past have had ongoing suffering and persecution, or instantaneous death. What's the eternal? It's ongoing torture and separation from God. What's the comparison here? Men, God, temporal, eternal, instant death, ongoing torture. We're so afraid of physical pain and death, but for believers, it is temporary. Cyril of Alexandria, church father, said, What terror of death can assail us now that life through Christ has abolished death? Eternal punishment far outweighs the temporal persecution, and that should inspire us to our public commitment. Look at what Jesus says back in Luke 12 now. Fear the one who can has authority to cast into hell. You may have a translation that actually says the word Gehenna there. Gehenna was a real place. In the Old Testament, it's called the Valley of Hinnom, which was south of Jerusalem, and the people of Judah used to sacrifice their babies there to a false god, Baal Molech. became known as a high place, a place of worship to a false god called Topheth. They sacrificed their sons and daughters and burned offerings. Josiah, the young king, godly king, dismantled that place, turned it into a smoldering garbage dump where the bodies of dead criminals were taken after they were executed. Garbage and waste, most likely manure, carried out there. It was a place that was cursed, constant burning. These people understood what Jesus was talking about when he said, I'm going to cast you into Gehenna a place of constant fire. This is a great warning. This is what will happen to those who are hypocritical and do not have a lifelong firm commitment to Christ and back down in the face of fear, proving they really don't know the Lord. So instead of treating God with a casual frivolity, we must fear Him because of His authority to cast into hell. Why would I be concerned when someone says, you deny Christ or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, like, we're like 
wired to protect ourselves at all physical cost. But when we think logically and rationally about eternal punishment, I mean, what, is, what does the Scripture say? It's far better to go into, go into hell with, uh, or into heaven with one eye than with, into hell with both eyes. Or it's better to go into heaven with maimed and arms cut off than to go into hell and have everything. I know I'm totally butchering that paraphrase, but I, I think you know what I'm saying and you remember that passage. John Knox, the great church figure who prayed, give me Scotland or I die, when he was being lowered into the ground, someone said, and I believe it became his epitaph, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. That's the point for, that's the point for followers. That's what Jesus is saying. Beware of that fear. Don't, don't be fake and don't fear other people. Big whoop. I mean, and, and like we live in such a blessed society now that seriously the worst thing that can happen to us is if we share Christ or live for Christ is, hey, dope. That's it. And we're so afraid of even that. Here's a key thought and something that has been helpful for me. I, I wish I could apply it more. Nothing in this experience is deserving of our genuine fear. Isn't that a helpful thought? Nothing in this experience is deserving of genuine fear. And so God goes on to tell us why that's the case, or Christ, excuse me, in the passage. He talks about two physical things. He talks about birds and hair. <laughs> birds and hair. Are there, are there any two more obscure, almost meaningless things, and I mean very unimportant things? Sparrows, nonetheless, and hair. Look at what he says. This is a beautiful, helpful, tender, intimate view of God, okay? Why should we not be afraid? I mean, oh, no, there's this powerful God ready to cast us into hell, and we kind of cower, and no, that's not the only side of God. Are not five sparrows, this is verse number six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, hardly anything, and not one of them is forgotten before God, and even the hairs of your head are all numbered, so fear not, because you have more value than many sparrows. The sparrows were the diet of the poor. Sparrows were so cheap as what poor people ate, sold for two pennies next to nothing. Even the hairs on our head are numbered. What is this pointing to? How is this encouraging? God's knowledge far surpasses our own, right? Far surpasses our own. And the argument here is from the lesser or the greater. If he cares for sparrows, <laughs> he's going to care for you. Be comforted in all that. But an important part in this lesson, and we must grasp this, is that God's knowledge does not protect the sparrows from being sold and eaten. You catch that? God's knowledge does not protect the sparrows from being sold and eaten. They're, they're still sold, and they're going to be eaten. God doesn't guarantee that he will protect our physical life. That's prosperity theology. And when you hear it, you should run from it. When, when, when pastors or books or sermons tell you that God wants you to be healthy and happy and, and safe and prosper in business and great relationships, God never promises that stuff. I mean, the sparrows are sold and eaten. You're going to be dragged before the tribunals, it's going to say in a little bit. We've already heard about, you know, that... that Christ will suffer and die, and that's going to happen to you as well. But it is the recognition of God's intimate knowledge of the situation that makes this evil and trouble bearable. 
What the, the passage isn't pointing to God's protection. It's pointing to his knowledge and intimate concern. God knows when these things happen, and he's in charge of these things happen. So we come to this next great key point, is that yes, God should be feared, but his character is such that we do not need to fear him. That's helpful. God is to be feared, but his character is such that we do not need to fear him. Because he's so tender and intimate, and he knows all. Do not fear him. Third section, we're moving our way to the end here, is forgiveness. Forgiveness, and I know this probably isn't the best, but it keeps us on track, and I'll start with the same letter. As wonderful as it is to know that God's knowledge of us is complete in this life, what does it matter if he forgets us in the next? Right? Everyone track that? I mean, aren't you glad God knows the hairs on your head? For some of you, it's an easier job than others. Okay, you didn't get that, but God knows every intimate detail about us. And, oh, that gives us such great comfort. Oh, God knows this thing I'm going through. God understands all my situations. Oh, this is so great. But what if he forgets us in the next life? What does all that matter? This is wonderful, but this is far more important. And that's what he kind of goes on to say. There's this picture of this courtroom scene in heaven. And what Jesus says in verses 8 to 10 is that everyone who confesses, that might be a better word than acknowledge, everyone who confesses me before men, because acknowledge is kind of, you know, that can be kind of a, confess is a better word. Everyone who publicly confesses Christ in this life, at that great heavenly court, Jesus will confess that he knows that person. But, contrast that with everyone who does not confess, and the opposite is denies him, this is verse 9, I will then deny that person before the angels in that heavenly courtroom. That, that's, that's huge. Well, didn't Peter deny Christ? Yeah, so will he be in heaven? I mean, what's being talked about here? I believe that a confession versus a denial means we must be open and honest about our total life, commit with him to him, attempting in all things to bring him glory, to verbally confess our faith, no matter what kind of opposition may come. And here's what J.C. Ryle says about it. The difficulty for believers to confess Christ is undoubtedly very great and will be at any period in time. It will never be easy as long as the world stands in opposition to God. It is sure to bring us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and even persecution. The world has always hated true Christians because it hated Christ. But whether we like it or not, and whether it be easy or hard, our course is clear. In one way or another, believers must confess Christ before others. And if you will not, if you're afraid to in a consistent way, someone has de de uh, defined it about Peter, is it a denial of nerve or is it a de denial of heart? Right? The, but Peter did deny, but he, man, he came back with a vengeance, did he not? Repenting of that, saying this was wrong, and then he publicly confess Christ the rest of his life. Jesus is not referring to a single incident in our life. Well, I remember when I was 16 years old, I told people at school I, I wasn't a Christian. That's not what it's talking about. Is your pattern of life a denial that proves no faith? Or are you ready to take a public stand no matter what the cost? That should lead us to real self-examination. Finally, and I hate to have only a couple minutes to talk about this because it's one of the most important things, but Jesus makes a point about something that has long been debated, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. An unpardonable sin, which some have said and worried, oh, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I ever blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Right? 
I blaspheme you, Holy Spirit. Am I, am I a goner for good? What, what is that? People question and wonder about it. First of all, Jesus says, anybody who says a word against the Son, this is in the passage, right? Anyone, I'm paraphrasing. Anyone who says a word against the Son, that can be forgiven. But to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that cannot be forgiven. So what is he talking about here? Well, let's first of all say all of us have blasphemed the Son. All of us have, right? Because there was a time when we weren't believers. There was a time we denied Christ. We did not reject him. We did not confess him as our Savior. We blasphemed him. Even Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I did those things in ignorance. And that can be forgiven. We say something against Christ, it can be forgiven. It has to be or else no one would be a believer. Okay? But what about, what about the blasphemy of the Spirit that cannot be forgiven? Let me make a couple of quick points and hopefully summarize it to our satisfaction. Okay? Now that Christ is gone from the earth, the only way, the only way for anybody to become a Christian is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way that happens is through the work of the Holy Spirit. No man saves another man. No woman saves another woman. Some, some have often used the term, well, I'm a good soul winner. No, you're not. There is no such thing. And I know what they mean, but no one saves another person. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Just a few references. 2 Corinthians 3.6 tells us it is the Spirit that gives life. John 3, you must be born again of the, of the water and of the Spirit. The Spirit is what regenerates, gives new life. John 16, what brings that conviction of sin? Is it just a guilty conscience? No, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin. 1 Corinthians 12.3 is very explicit saying, no one can call Christ Lord unless the Spirit enables that person to do that. The only way you came to Christ is through the Spirit. We read it in 1 Corinthians 12 today. All of us have been baptized into Christ. doesn't mean have anything to do with water, that term, in that particular context. It means placed into. Baptized means immersed or, or dunked into, placed into. So when the body says we are placed or baptized by the Spirit, it means the Spirit has taken us. Figuratively, the Spirit has taken us and put us into Christ. The Spirit does that. So if you blaspheme the Spirit, how could you ever be forgiven? You understand what I'm saying? Since the Holy Spirit convicts us and regenerates and reveals Christ to us and no truth comes to us apart from the Holy Spirit and you speak evil of the Spirit, how can you be forgiven? How can you be forgiven? Blasphemy, then, is a persistent decisive rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Christ. I like to talk about the Trinity in this way, that they are, of course, equal in their essence, but they are subservient to each other in the way that they carry out their, their ministry and their acts. The Father, the Son came for what reason? The Son came to highlight the Father. I, I like to think it almost like if I could draw a cartoon of a spotlight, and the Father's over there, and this spotlight is just going out, and, it, and the Son John 1.18 is declaring the Father, the Son, I'm coming, I only speak what the Father says. I, I came because the Father sent me. And then the Spirit comes, Jesus says in John 13, 14, 15, I'm going to send you another comforter and he will teach you all things concerning me. And so the Spirit shines his light onto the Son. And so the only way any of us come to Christ or know Christ is because the Spirit shines that light. And rejecting that Spirit's revelation of the truth in Christ, there is no other truth coming. So in a sense, the only way a person could commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when they say, I reject the ministry of the Spirit's teaching about Christ in my life. I don't want that. Well, how can you be forgiven? Everyone worries, well, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 
you know, if you have received the truth that the Spirit impressed upon your heart, then you've not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've received the teaching of the Spirit. And that's what the passage goes on to say. So when you come before these synagogues and rulers and authority, don't worry about what you say because the Spirit resides in you as your teacher and the Spirit will guide you as to what you say and the Spirit lives in you and assures you and seals you and sustains you in that hour of trial. I hope that answers the question. A lot of people have attributed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to something else. I really think that is the true and right answer. As much as I know the scriptures and, and study, studied it this week to the extent that I have, I think I'm giving you the right answer there. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit consists of a constant rejection of the Spirit's message. And that's why the, the, the scripture talks about in Hebrews, if you keep trampling the blood of Christ underfoot, there's no other way coming. So respond to the gospel. That's application number one. Respond to the truth of the gospel. I'll try to give you a few application points before we quit. Respond. Don't, don't quench the Spirit. Receive the Spirit's teaching, but what about for us as followers of Christ? Can I give you two quick applications, and they're very simple because they go just with what we said. First, beware of hypocrisy, and second, don't be afraid. And that's what Christ is telling his followers today, right? As you live your life for Christ in this world, don't be a hypocrite. Beware of that. God will expose everything. Think about that. Think about the next text you sent. God sees that. God knows what you're saying. Think about the next TV channel you turn on. God sees that. Think about the next word you speak. God hears that. The Holy Spirit's in you. He hears everything. And it will all be brought to light. Not that we're going to pay for that again, because it's been paid for by the blood of Christ, but we want to please Him in our lives and be real and sincere. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear God, not men. A few months ago, when we were doing our church history study, I told you the story of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Do you remember that? In case you don't, he was the Archbishop Archbishop. Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wrote the Book of Common Prayer. And Bloody Mary, who was uh, slaughtering Protestants by the hundreds, took two of his good friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, and burned them at the stake because they would not recant their commitment to Christ. And given the chance, Cranmer wrote that he rejected the gospel in order to be spared from that fiery death. Yet he was still imprisoned, and he was going to be brought out to be killed. Remember this? He was still in prison, brought out to be killed, uh, and then he would have to publicly recant so that everybody could see that this guy was recanting his faith in Christ. He would still be killed. And as he thought about it that night, he came out the next day, and he said, uh, you know, the Pope is the Antichrist. And I mean, just I remember reading that statement to you that, that is recorded for us. And he said, I do not. I, I was in a moment of weakness and I do not reject my Lord. How could I ever do that? And remember, he put his hand in the fire until it was burned and then stayed in there. And you can go to the very spot where this happened. They have a, they have a marking where Latimer and Ridley were killed. It is that kind of boldness and courage that believers must be marked by. No fear. Trust God. Declare him. Love others. Time is short, and eternity will be long. Let us be bold and committed and courageous for Christ, not hypocritical and not afraid. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how thankful we are today for your goodness and your forgiveness. Many of us can think of moments in our lives where we've caved to pressure, where we've lived lives of hypocrisy, where we maybe even have said, oh, Christ isn't that important to me. Maybe not those words, but we've acted that way. We've presented something that isn't really true. God, forgive us for that. Though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We need that forgiveness. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which impressed upon us at some point, those of us who are saved, the truth of Jesus. Thank you for opening our eyes to that truth and 
helping us to receive it. We pray for boldness and courage in this day. God, we live in a day where it gets increasingly more difficult, and yet it's still only mockery or ridicule or maybe lack of, uh, lack of friendships or, or something pretty minor in comparison to what our brothers and sisters in Christ have endured throughout history. Let us learn from Cranmer's influence. Let us learn from Stephen's influence as he stood and boldly proclaimed the gospel and then was stoned to death but had the confidence of of knowing he would be received into glory and publicly acknowledged by Christ in that heavenly courtroom. Father, help us to see the eternal and to be bold and strong and courageous, to live lives of integrity without fear as we trust you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. The songbook that uh, we've used today has our final song in it, and uh, it comes right from the passage that Derek read to us earlier, Search Me, O God. God, reveal to us the inner uh, reality of our lives. Help us not to be hypocritical. We confess this sin. So in closing, we want to sing this song as our song of commitment. If, as always, if you have a spiritual need, something you need to talk about today, something you need to confess, something you want to pray about, I can meet you at the door and we can take all the time we need to go through the scripture and talk. If you need to be saved, we would be happy to talk to you about that as well. But let's stand together and commit what we've heard uh, from God's word today as we sing page number 11. Search me, O God. Search.